Can I encourage you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and we will be reading from chapter 18 and 19. We're not going to be reading all of chapter 18 and 19, because I saw a couple of heads look up at me there whenever I said that, but we're going to be reading a couple of sections of it. We're going to be reading the first 15 verses of chapter 18, and then we're going to jump down to verse 31 in chapter 18 and read on into chapter 19. So 2 Samuel, chapter 18. Let's hear God speak to us through his word. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, and a third under or the son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving these orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. And the army marched into the field to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the army of Israel was defeated by David's men and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and a mule went under a thick branches of a large oak. Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging midair while the mule kept on riding. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I have seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who had told him this, what, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. And Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Jumping down to verse 31, what has happened in the interim is that two runners have been sent from this incident of the killing of Joab or the killing of Absalom by Joab. And these two runners have arrived at David bringing this news. And the second one is called a, is a Cushite. So we're going to pick up at 31 as the Cushite runner arrives. And it says, and then the Cushite arrived and said, my Lord, the King, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The King asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom alive? Or is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, may the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up and harm you, be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. And the king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men. You have just saved your life and and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway and the young men were, and the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway and they all came before him. This is God's word. Amen. We've seen a lot happen in the life of David over the past few weeks. We have seen really the rise of his kingdom and the fall of his kingdom, this coup. And we are seeing, in a sense, the drawing to the close of a lot of the drama. This end of Absalom marks, in a sense, the end of a lot of the drama that's been taking place over the past few chapters. The coup is dead. The coup is defeated. And we would expect it to be a moment of great rejoicing. We would expect it to be a day of great victory, especially because the forces of David were smaller than the forces of Israel. And so one would expect that they would be rejoicing the fact that a smaller army had defeated a greater army in the forest. And that line back in verse 18 that says the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword in verse 8. Then if you're getting memories of Lord of the Rings and Ents and the Orcs fleeing into the forest. It's probably not quite like that. It's probably more that the men were able to use the advantage of the forest to defeat a larger force. And we might read through this story and we might be coming out the other side of it and going, great, the coup's been defeated, now what? What do we do with it? What's the point? And I think whenever we take a step back from this passage and we see it in its full length and the full context of it, I think we see one very particular and very poignant truth. And that's that we see how God has been controlling the events in David's life, even whenever they looked incredibly chaotic. You can imagine how chaotic the past few chapters have been for David. He has seen some of his closest advisors go and turn against him. He's seen his own son plot to overthrow him and kill him. He has seen now the news that his son is dead and it seems that it's just chaos that is reigning in his life. And we might wonder, where's the control? But I think this passage shows us really clearly how even whenever we feel like there's chaotic things going on in our life, God is working and God is controlling all these things. As he says in Romans chapter eight, God works all things for the good of those who love him. And I think that's what we see working out in this passage for David. So the first thing we see this morning is we see the control that God has exercised over David's life. I imagine whenever I begin to talk about the idea that our lives are controlled or shaped or influenced by somebody else, we probably bristle a wee bit at that, or at least some of you perhaps bristle a wee bit at that. 
You know, we're a, a, we're a generation who like to think that we are masters of our own fate. We are people who like to think that we have our own sense of independence, our own sense of self, and the idea that our lives aren't our own, that anybody else can lay claim to our time or to our talents, that's really quite offensive to us because we are in the West. We are the society of the individual, and the individual has complete control and autonomy. It's summed up in that line you all know, the customer's always right. In our society, the culture may almost be the individual's always right because what's true for them is true for them. And yet, we probably begin to see how this idea is beginning to back down. Our society was told a wonderful view, stretching away back to the Enlightenment about 400 years ago. And it was this idea that as we became more progressed as a society, as we progress as a society, we will become more technologically advanced, we will get better with science, we'll get better with technology, and we will be able to control the world around us. And to a large extent, it was true. Um, we have control over a lot of the diseases that we didn't have control of over 400 years ago. None of you are concerned about smallpox at the minute. I know that sounds strange when you're wearing a mask, but smallpox was a lot more deadly than COVID. But we were able to control that. We were able to control our foods. Some of you here, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your, your hands in any way, shape or form. Some of you in this room will remember a time whenever getting an orange was a real treat. Um, and whenever an orange was something that could only be got at a particular time of day. For my mum, my mum would always tell me that she got an orange on Christmas morning and it was the best orange she'd ever had because it was the only time she could get it was that year. But yet we walk into a supermarket now and no matter what's in season in the fields around you, you can have it all year round, whenever you want. Pre or post Brexit, we still have an amazing access to foods in the supermarket. We have control through shipping and through transport and through our ability to um, make the most of the climates around the world to get whatever we want, whenever we want. How many of you remember back to the days, those ancient days long ago, whenever there was only four channels on the TV? That seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Whenever, whenever if, something, if there was nothing on, you're like, well, there's only four channels, I have to pick something. Whilst now we have so much control over what we watch, you can control not only what you watch on the infinite amount of channels, but you can control when you watch it on BBC iPlayer or Catch Up or all of those Catch Up streaming services that I've went blank on. We have amazing control, don't we? We can control all the aspects of our lives down to the nth degree and the tiniest little detail. And yet, do you feel in control? Do you feel in control? Do you feel that you are in control and everything's sorted and organized and your ducks are in a row? Or do you feel that you're just jumping one thing to the next? And do you feel that for all of the talk of control, that your life just feels chaotic? Whenever we live in a culture that tells us we can have control, we can have control, that the, the zenith of our lives is to have control over our lives around us and to have it all planned out and all particularly organized. Whenever we don't reach that, that does great harm to us mentally. I think it's no coincidence that the more technologically advanced societies have become, the less productive they've also become 
and the higher rates of mental health problems have arisen. Because with the promise of control, we never have it fully realized and we never really feel like we're in control. This past year and a bit has proven us that we are not as in control as we would like to think. I'm sure many of us, whenever we get sick, we just presume we can go into the doctors, get the pill that will make us better until we get hit with a sickness which we don't have a cure for or we don't have a vaccine for. We are not in, the, in our control of our lives as much as we would like to think. And in a society that wants to tell us we're in control, whenever we're not, it causes us grave harm. It's even begun to be picked up in a lot of the psychological literature. Some of you have maybe begun to hear about an idea called self-care. Some of you maybe in your work have had to do courses on self-care. You've maybe read books on it. You maybe know people talk about it. Self-care, and there's a lot of good things about self-care. There's a lot of good things about self-care. Um, there's one particular aspect of self-care that's arisen out of um, the work of a psychologist called Tara Brack, um, who's kind of built on Buddhist ideology to talk about this thing called radical acceptance. This idea that you can't, accept, you can't control the world around you. You can't control the people around you. You just need to radically accept the world around you and as it is, and I think what she's getting at whenever she says that is actually a much deeper truth that we already probably know in the Christian faith and want to embrace. That is, as we read in the words of Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples in Luke chapter 17, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Or maybe if we might paraphrase it, whoever tries to keep control of their lives will lose their lives. When he ever loses control of their lives will keep their lives. Whenever we begin to realize that we don't have the control over our lives that we would like to think, we are not the all-seeing, all-knowing, the all-powerful. We are the limited, the frail, and the frantic. It forces us to realize that we want to believe there is some sense of control in the world, don't we? And I think this is one of the comforting things we see in this passage is that David, though feeling his life is chaotic, Though seeing that there is so much going wrong around him, God is still working in his life and is still in control. If you look down at verse 31, whenever the Cushite comes to David, he says, my Lord, the King, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all those who rose up against you. This Cushite is able to see something that David isn't able to see. He's able to see that God is working even in the fact that they've just had to deal with a massive coup. God is working and still in control of this situation and is moving it for David's good, even whenever he can't see it. If you don't believe in God this morning, you might find that a bit of a stretch. You might just think the world is just a bunch of random accidents and there's no rhyme nor reason to it. I think the difficulty is we none of us live as if that's true. None of us live as if we live in a world of random accidents. We all believe there's a cause. And if you turn on the TV, you'll hear a lot of pop psychology about, well, if fate means it to happen, it'll happen. Or if the universe wants it to happen, it'll happen. And if you watch for it on the TV, there is so much conversation about there wanting to be some cosmic power that controls the world. And as Christians, what we want to say in response to that is, yes, there is a cosmic power that controls the world, but it is not a cold, unknowable power. It is not a yin or a yang or karma or 
that idea that everybody, what goes around comes around. Rather, what controls the world is a personal, knowable, and intimately close God in heaven. Do you want to feel as if there is some control in the world? As Christians, the hope that we offer says that there is, and we can know the person who controls it. We can know him far more intimately. Does it ever blow your mind as a Christian that you have 24-7 access to the creator, sustainer, and upholder of the whole universe? Because that's what we have. We are not in a shapeless world that has no rhyme, nor reason, nor cause. But we have a God who is shaping and using all of it for the good of those who love him. The second thing we see in this passage is that though God is in control, that can be incredibly uncomfortable. You've maybe noticed there's a bit of a moral dilemma that arises in this passage. As the army goes out, David sits telling all of the troops or his commanders, his commanders enlisting of the troops to not harm the young man, Absalom. And whenever Absalom is riding along with his long, luscious locks, he gets his head stuck in an oak tree and the mule runs out from underneath him and he's stuck up the tree. And these troops surround him and the troops, remembering the words of David, don't harm Absalom. And whenever they take word back to Joab, who's the head general, the longest serving general in David's army, who's been his closest commander throughout this whole, this whole book, Joab is incensed whenever he hears of this. He can't understand what he looked down at verse 11. He says, what? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? And Joab then texts upon himself to go and kill Absalom along with his 10 armor bearers. Now, I want to ask you this morning, was what Joab did wicked or was it wise? Was David the one making the right decision here or was it Joab? I imagine as we read this, we maybe want to think that um, David was maybe the one in the right, because we can like to think of it that way. We can see David and think, well, you know, he was wanting to show mercy and forgiveness. So of course David was in the right. But as we can see, and as the passage moves on, we begin to see that it's a lot more complicated than that. Because if Absalom had lived, there would have always been a rebellion. If Absalom had lived, David could never sleep at peace. His family would be in constant jeopardy. As long as Absalom lived, the one who God had placed over Israel would always be at threat. And Joab is faced with the difficult moral decision, but he chooses it anyway and he takes it. And he recognizes that as long as Absalom is alive, there can be no peace in Israel. And so he slays Absalom. And David is crushed by it. We can hear of his weeping when he says, my son, my son, O Absalom, my son. The Bible often doesn't communicate um, emotion in the same way that we would maybe communicate it today. And I think that's sometimes maybe why we can find reading the Bible difficult. But I think whenever we hear the cries of David, we know exactly what he's getting at, don't we? 
we can imagine how crushing that would have been for David that day. As it says in verse one of chapter 19, or in verse two, sorry, the whole army, for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. How crushing must that have been for David? And yet, and yet, if Absalom had lived, David would have died. If Absalom had lived, David's family would be dead. If Absalom had lived, the soldiers who had died in David's name would have died in vain. Often whenever God wants to carry out something in our lives, it doesn't go the way we would like him to do it. It doesn't go the way that we would like to plan it. Often in our lives, we are faced with difficulties and pains that we feel, God, why are you doing this? What is the point of this? And we can often feel like David that we want to sit and mourn. And yet I think it's in those moments we can begin to see how God is really using everything, even the worst and hardest aspects of our lives for our good. It takes great difficulty to see it, but often that is what he is doing. It's that verse that I keep repeating throughout this sermon, Romans 8, 28. God works for the good of those who love him. I think it's also worth reminding that if we believe in a God who's real, a God who actually exists, we ought to expect things in our life to sometimes be painful. Because if we had a God who simply believed everything we believed and did everything that we did and would follow every plan that we would follow, that's not a God who's real. That's just a figment of our own imaginations concocted from our own personal preferences. But the God of the Bible is not a God of our own personal preferences. He's a God who is real. And so we should expect in our lives to have moments that are painful, that are challenging, and that are trying. And the Christian faith doesn't say that you need to face it with a stiff upper lip and a stoicism. No, no, it, it, it's okay to embrace that it can be hard and it's difficult. But the Christian way of looking at the world recognizes that all things are working ultimately for our good and that we can trust in the God who has always been faithful to his people and that we can always rest upon him who keeps all of his promises. We may not understand what he's doing in the moment, but we know what he will ultimately do in the end whenever he ultimately brings all things in heaven and all things on earth together under his righteous rule and reign. And that might be comfortable as the sins and the idols and the things in our lives that are clogging up our hearts, as we have those removed, that can be painful. So often our spiritual lives don't require a quick nip of calpol, but they require deep, deep surgery. And that's so often what we see going on, especially in moments like this. But I think we can take great comfort in the words of Jesus in chapter, Matthew chapter seven, verse 11, where he says that, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We have a good Father in heaven who will give us good gifts even though they might not seem good at the time. 
Finally, what we see in this passage is that there's a greater cause. All that has happened to David throughout his life has been working and building up to one thing. And that isn't that David will be this mighty righteous king who has no opponents. We've seen that that's clearly not the case. But everything is working to mark him out as the person who is the anointed one, the king of all Israel, the one who will have a descendant who will not just be the anointed king, but the anointed promised Messiah from whom not just Israel, but all of the world will be blessed. God will work through David, through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the good times, the bad times, to bring about what is, in a sense, the greatest bit of good news and the greatest thing that God will ever do on the earth, which he will send his son to die upon the cross for sinners like us. And I wonder if we had been in the garden with Jesus and we had known what was about to happen, would we have thought, God, this is crazy. Why would you do this? Why would you put our Saviour, our Messiah through this? But it's because we can look back and we can see the greatest good, the greatest cause that God was working to in the midst of it. There's the age-old phrase that hindsight is twenty-twenty, And I often think that's truer than we would ever like to admit. But I think this passage shows us it, where we can look back over a life, a life a lot like ours, a life that's filled with mistakes, with ups and downs and with tragedies, but a life that's being used by God to advance his ultimate aim, which is to bring people like us into a saving relationship with him. We worship a God who's in control and we worship a God who keeps his promises and we worship a God who's faithful. There's a great comfort in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you're a God who works all things for the good of those who love him. Father, would you help us to rest, remain, to trust and abide in that? Would we see all things as for our good, even the hard things? And would you help us see you and your glory in the midst of it? For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.